This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a preview of the November issue of the Jewish Observer. First article from the Observer, How Dayton's Dailies Covered Jewish Life Here Long Before We Had Local Jewish Papers. And this is a piece that I wrote for Ohio Genealogy News, and they are graciously giving me permission to run it in our paper. On the afternoon of Wednesday, October 7, 1863, Dayton's 40-plus Jewish families held a grand celebration, the dedication of the first synagogue building in this city of approximately 20,000 people. Holy Congregation B'nai Yeshurun, now known as Temple Israel, had purchased the building at the northeast corner of 4th and Jefferson Streets from a Baptist church. Two local daily newspapers, the Dayton Journal, Republican, and the Daily Empire, Democratic, presented vivid accounts of the proceedings in their issues the next day. Because of the journal, we know the procession to the new synagogue included a large number of pretty little girls dressed in white, beautifully decorated, and they were marching in couples then young ladies charmingly costumed and exquisitely decked with headdresses and scarves succeeded them. We also know that uh, from the journal that prominent members of the congregation followed them, carrying three Torah scrolls covered with the richest velvet cloth, with crowns and decoration followed under a canopy. The Jews may well be proud of their beautiful place of worship, the daily empire pronounced to its readers. Over the next few days, each newspaper ran corrections about the event. Both had listed the name of the congregation's new rabbi, Reverend Mr. Delbanco, incorrectly. It's possible the congregation printed his name wrong in the event program, and the papers likely followed suit. Not only did the Daily Empire run this correction, it reprinted the entire article with two items not mentioned, in the first version, a notation that the eldest members of the congregation carried the Torah scrolls in the procession to the new synagogue building, and that the mayor and city council were in attendance. This revised version of the article begins with a clear explanation. By request of our Jewish friends, we republish the account of the dedication of the synagogue for the purpose of correcting errors which were made in the original. More than 150 years later, I am glad the Daily Empire did so, not only to clarify the record, but to add even more detail to help later generations better visualize the scene. It's also the first of numerous examples in Dayton's daily newspapers and across party lines of their interest in and detailed coverage of this small Jewish community from its near beginnings through the 20th century. This was long before a Jewish press raised its own voice in Dayton, though Jews here could look for some coverage of our community in Cincinnati's American Israelite, established 1854, and the Ohio Jewish Chronicle, based in Columbus, established 1922. The first known Jewish newspaper in Dayton, the Dayton Jewish Life, published for about a year, from the end of 1917 to the end of 1918. Temple Israel attempted to publish the Dayton Jewish Record between 1934 and 1935. 
It wasn't until 1959 when Dayton had its own Jewish newspaper again, the Dayton Jewish Chronicle, this time until 1995. Since 1996, I've had the honor of serving as editor of the Gem City's current Jewish newspaper. When I began my research into Dayton's Jewish history, I was pleasantly surprised to find the local dailies were such treasured resources. I read for myself that the earliest Jews to arrive in Dayton became active participants in the betterment of the general community and that they were given a seat at the table. And in situations where they weren't, the daily papers here would call it out. With the advent of newspapers.com, quick access to these publications helps me find information in minutes that might otherwise take weeks. The first Jews to settle in Dayton came in the 1840s. They emigrated from Prussia and Bavaria, where they were prohibited from certain professions, places they could live, and often from legally marrying. They generally met with success in Dayton, working their way up from peddlers to shop owners. When the first key leader of Dayton's Jewish community, Joseph Lebensberger, died at age 65 in 1877, the Dayton Journal reported, he was largely known in the vicinity and highly esteemed. We also learned from the journal that he was a mason, an odd fellow, a member of the ancient order of united workmen and the red men. As far back as 1860, the Daily Empire sporadically included information about upcoming Jewish holidays, their significance, and how they were observed. In 1865, the publication included an account of a local Jewish wedding. We had the pleasure of witnessing on yesterday afternoon the lengthy and peculiarly impressive ceremonies of a Jewish marriage at the house of Mr. L. Jacobs, the Empire reported August 15, 1865. May success attend the new married pair in the realization of their fondest hopes in the married life. The journal offer, uh, also offered information about Jewish holidays and included goings-on of members of the Jewish community on its society page. A Happy New Year. That is the manner in which Jew greets Jew today read a daily Herald headline September 14, 1882. That year, the Daily Herald also included in its society column an item about an employee with Dayton's German Jewish Social Club. Mr. Joseph Betus, who so acceptably filled the position of janitor for the Standard Jewish Club during the past nine years, has resigned the position greatly to the regret of many members of the club. Joe has gone back to his old business as an optician. When James Cox started the Dayton Daily News in 1898, his Democratic newspaper also published information about Jewish holidays and included Jews in its society column. Two years later, with the arrival of Rabbi David Lefkowitz to serve B'nai Yeshurun Synagogue, Cox was present at the young Lefkowitz's first sermon in Dayton. In short order, Lefkowitz became known for his sermons on social reform. Cox, a progressive Democrat who would later serve three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives and three terms as Ohio's governor, saw to it that the Dayton Daily News began to cover Lefkowitz's lectures. He first showed up in the March 31, 1900 issue of the Dayton Daily News when Cox published the touching eulogy Lefkowitz delivered the night before at the synagogue in memory of Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, 
the Cincinnati-based architect of Reform Judaism in America, who was also Lefkowitz's teacher. A month later, Lefkowitz appeared in an extensive society item in Cox's paper. The rabbi had officiated at the wedding of Corrine Pollock, daughter of Dayton's successful whiskey wholesaler and celebrated Civil War veteran, Isaac Pollock, to a young man from Lexington, Kentucky. As common in society items of the day, the report described the gowns worn by the women of the wedding party and shared the dinner menu, which shows us how Dayton's reformed Jews dined, decidedly not kosher, but still no pork in those days. The banquet hall was beautifully decorated with lilies, palms, white roses, and carnations, and the glow of rose-shaded candelabra gave a bewitching radiance to the festive scene we learned of the reception and ball at the Standard Club. The color scheme of white and green prevailed throughout the house, and the appointments were elegant. The Dayton Daily News started listing Lefkowitz's upcoming synagogue sermons, Non-Jews began attending Friday night Sabbath services at B'nai Yeshron to hear what he had to say, and Lefkowitz would receive invitations to deliver lectures to civic groups and for high-profile public occasions, which Cox would also cover. Lefkowitz, described in the Dayton Daily as the thrilling and eloquent leader of the modern Jewish church in this city, delivered the oration at the annual memorial service of Encampment No. 83 Union Veteran Legion in 1902, a speech to the student body of Steele High School, and a stereo-opticon talk at Christ Church about the great men of Israel in 1903, and the eulogy for the annual memorial services of the Gem City Council No. 3, United Commercial Travelers, in 1904. The Journal and Herald began listing the rabbi's upcoming sermon topics during that decade, too. They, along with the Dayton Daily, also reported on happenings in Dayton's more recently established synagogues of impoverished Orthodox Jewish immigrants flooding into America from Eastern Europe. House of Jacob and House of Abraham in Dayton's East End, and the multitude of Jewish clubs and service organizations that sprang up here at the turn of the 20th century. A comfort level developed between apparent, uh, be, a comfort level became apparent among the local dailies and the somewhat balkanized segments of Dayton's Jewish community that allowed for open, honest coverage of the Jewish community and in the absence of a sustainable local Jewish newspaper. For Jews who could read English, the daily papers enabled them to learn about aspects of Jewish life and sensibilities from other parts of the Jewish community, which they may not have encountered in their daily lives at that point. In some ways, this may have nudged segments of the Jewish community closer together in the lead-up to the great unifiers soon to come, the Great Dayton Flood of 1913 and World War I. Zionism, which was not yet a settled issue across Judaism's movements, was actively covered, discussed, and debated in the dailies with local Jews weighing in. At the request of the Dayton Daily, attorney Ishur L. Jacobson wrote the article, Will the Jew Return to Palestine? How the World War Will Affect Zionist Movement, September 5, 1915. Rabbi M. Lichtenstein of the Wayne Avenue Synagogue, Beth Abraham, took Rabbi Samuel Mayerberg of the Jefferson Street Temple, B'nai Yeshurun, 
to task in the March 20, 1921 Dayton Daily News, castigating Meyerberg in detail for his statement that the Jews are not a nation, but a race with a religious ideal. Not only did the, the local Dayton papers widely cover the anti-Semitic pogroms of Eastern Europe before, during, and after World War I, this coverage rallied leaders in Dayton's general community. They gathered together publicly with Dayton's Jews, condemned the violent hatred, and helped raise funds for its victims. This was documented in detail in those papers, which also published unsigned editorials in support of the Russian Jews who had immigrated to the United States. On at least one occasion, a political fight within a synagogue spilled over to a daily with both parties knowingly airing their beefs in the public eye. Expect big doings at annual election of House of Jacob announced a Dayton Herald headline August 2, 1910 of a hot contest for synagogue president between supporters of longtime President Nathan Bader and Harry Office. Friends of Office have their knives out for Bader's scalp and it was said Tuesday that even if Bader does get enough votes to be elected, steps will be taken to prevent him from serving, the Herald exclaimed. After the election, the Herald reported August 8th that by a margin of one vote, irregularities were alleged in the annual election and that court proceedings were threatened to prevent Nathan Bader from again taking his seat as president of the congregation. But on August 15th, the Herald reported the conflict was resolved in the interest of harmony. Bader withdrew from the presidency, although he claimed he was regularly and legally elected president. The 1920s and 30s marked the shift to the most anti-Semitic period in America until the Jew hatred and mass killings of Pittsburgh, Poway, Jersey City, and Muncie in our time. And a century ago, Dayton's Daily stood firm to give the region's Jews a fair shake. When Dayton became a hotbed of Ku Klux Klan activity in the early 1920s, the dailies covered it thoroughly. The Dayton Daily News trumpeted that it had brought the, uh, to the attention of the Montgomery County Commission that the county had allowed the Klan to book a meeting for May 26, 1922 to be held at the county's War Memorial Auditorium Memorial Hall. When the county commission failed to take action to stop the Klan meeting, the Dayton Daily reported this, and that B'nai Yeshurun's Rabbi Samuel Meyerberg, civic and business leader M.J. Gibbons Jr., Catholic, and the Reverend John N. Samuels Bellboder, pastor of the African-American St. Margaret's Episcopal Church, had filed an injunction to bar the Klan from rallying not only at Memorial Hall, but anywhere in the county. The attorneys who prepared the injunction were active in civic affairs as well as their respective religious communities, Sidney Kusworm, a Jew, and John C. Shea, a Catholic. A county judge granted the injunction hours before the scheduled event. All of this made the front pages of the local dailies, U.S. Supreme Court decisions that would set the bar high for freedom of speech were not yet in place. Later that year, on its December 9, 1922 front page, the Dayton Daily reported on Mayor Berg's fiery sermon of the night before at B'nai Yeshurun, in which he challenged Dayton's Council of Churches to issue a statement condemning the Klan. The Protestant Church has a great opportunity to teach a lesson in vigorous Americanism 
by condemning this vile un-American organization, Mayor Berg declared. The next day, the Dayton Daily reported the council's tepid reply. The Dayton Council of Churches went on record about a month ago as denying certain rumored connections with the Ku Klux Klan. Little more than a month ago, the Federal Council of the Churches of Christ in America issued a statement to the press. It was endorsed by the Dayton Council of Churches officially disclaiming any control over or interest in the Ku Klux movement. The stories of physicians Dr. Leo Schramm and a generation later Dr. Hans Lieberman show how anti-Semitism in Dayton over that period grew and how the local papers responded. Both of their lives were well covered over several decades in Dayton's dailies. Wisconsin native Dr. Leo Schramm, a Jew, was elected president of the Montgomery County Medical Association, now Medical Society, in 1908. He served as Dayton City Physician for more than two decades, conducting physicals for students in Dayton's public and parochial schools. Schramm was chief medical consultant and on the executive board of Miami Valley Hospital. He was also a member of the Triangle Club, Knights of Pythias, and a Mason. In 1938, physician Dr. Hans Lieberman, also a Jew, fled Nazi Germany, passed the Ohio State Board medical examination, and then arrived in Dayton in 1939. Office buildings refused to rent Lieberman's space for his practice, even though occupancy was low at the time. Three hospitals at first rejected his application for privileges, even though he had his own ear, nose, and throat practice in Germany since 1928. He, along with another Jewish refugee doctor, was rejected for membership in the Montgomery County Medical Association in January 1940, the very society of which Schramm was president 32 years before. Lieberman would later recount in an oral history that as soon as the local papers reported on the Medical Society rejections, new patients showed up at his office to support him. He would go on to assist several hundred Jewish families resettle in Dayton after World War II and supplied affidavits for Jewish families to enter the United States. As of three years ago when I was finishing my book, Jewish Community of Dayton, the Montgomery County Medical Society had no information that Dr. Leo Schramm had ever served as its president, even though this had been well documented in Dayton's dailies. Now that I think of it, it's time to provide, to provide the society with this easy-to-confirm information so the good doctor of a century ago can receive the recognition he deserved. And next from the Dayton section of the Observer, Washington Township Strip Club van vandalized with anti-Semitic sticker. When a member of Dayton's Jewish community post, uh, posted a photo on Facebook, September 16th, of an anti-Semitic sticker pasted on the rear of a strip club's van. Her friends could see the sticker really was on the rear of the van. Rachel Hall Gilbert and her family were picking up pizza for dinner in Washington Township that evening when she noticed the sticker on the Diamonds Cabaret van parked in front of the private club at 960 Miamisburg Centerville Road on the other side of the outdoor mall. The sticker showed an illustration of Jesus giving the middle finger with the message, F. Jews. 
Diamond's van, wrapped with images of scantily clad females, features a woman's rear on the back of the vehicle. And that's where a vandal affixed the anti-Semitic sticker. Gilbert also posted that she immediately parked her car and ripped off the offensive slur, the word Jew, and posted a photo of the sticker after she had scraped off the word. Diamond's cabaret owner Luke Liakos told the Jewish Observer he wasn't at the club at the time but learned of the hate vandalism that evening on social media. Then I immediately called my managers to go out and see what was going on and they immediately removed it, Liakos said. It was disturbing and upsetting to say the least. After his managers removed the rest of the sticker by then missing the word Jews, Liakos said he called the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office that night. The Sheriff's Office report made no mention of the sticker's anti-Jewish content, though after Liakos later received a copy of the report, he emailed the Sheriff's Department the original photo of the sticker from Gilbert's Facebook post. It was not documented because the deputy that responded out there had no idea what the sticker said, Major Matt Haynes of the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office told the Observer. The person that called, who was an employee of Diamond's, never saw the sticker, just the aftermath of the sticker being ripped off by somebody, so he didn't know what it said when he called us. Haynes added that he was providing the FBI with the image Liakos emailed to the sheriff's office. Liakos, who isn't Jewish, is convinced the hate sticker was put on his van by one of the religious protesters who show up in front of his business on the weekends. I have a feeling they were behind it, he said. I can't prove it because we don't have a video of it. We went through all the video and we couldn't find it, he said. It's just so frustrating. I'm so sick of the hate and anti-Semitism. He said protesters usually show up at Diamonds on Friday or Saturday nights. They sit out front on the sidewalk with their bullhorns and do their thing, Liako said. They have a van and the whole van is wrapped with abortion kills. Since Diamonds doesn't have a liquor license, it's bring your own, it legally stays open until early morning. I don't want anybody to even remotely think that I would have anything to do with something like this, Liakos said. I get it. Certain people don't like my business, and that's fine. I completely understand it. What I do at Diamonds is not for everyone, but when they start putting up hate stickers, that more than crosses the lines in my world, and I take action. Will we probably catch the people that did this? Probably not, unless they keep doing it. And next, Dayton Jewish Observer wins three awards from Ohio's Best Journalism Contest. The Dayton Jewish Observer won one first place and two second place awards from Ohio's Best Journalism Contest, sponsored by the Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Columbus Society of Professional Journalists, which announced its 2020 honorees October 1st. Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of The Observer, took first place in Best Religion Reporting for publications with circulation below 60,000 for his news coverage of last year's Klan rally in Dayton. An interesting look at how the city handled a potential powder keg of competing political demonstrations and the impact on a Jewish business owner, the competition noted in the judge's comments about the piece. This is the fifth first-place award Weiss has received from Ohio's Best Journalism Contest, the tenth overall for The Observer. 
Weiss also received this year's second place award for best religion reporting in the same circulation category for the article Jewish Families Dismayed Prep School Won't Denounce Student Display as Anti-Semitic. Observer columnist Masha Kissel received the second place award for best columnist in the same circulation category for her column, Abyssal Kissel, in which the Jewish emigre from the former Soviet Union has shared how she navigates Judaism with her young family in Oakwood today. This is the first Ohio's Best Journalism Contest win for Kissel, who began writing her column for The Observer in 2019. Established in 1996, The Observer is published by the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton. And next from The Observer, comparing Jewish resources on the genealogy giants November 8th. Veteran Jewish records researchers Ellen Schindelman-Cowett and Sonny Jane Morton will present comparing Jewish resources on the genealogy giants via Zoom at 10 a.m. Sunday, November 8th as the next program of Miami Valley Jewish Genealogy and History in partnership with Beth Abraham Synagogue Men's Club Speaker Series and Temple Israel's Rider Band Lecture Series. Cowett and Morton will compare Jewish resources across websites Ancestry, Family Search, Find My Past, My Heritage, and Jewish Gen, and will provide tips on when searching one site over another might be advantageous. Cowett has volunteered in worldwide genealogy activities for 25 years. Based in Erie, Colorado, she has organized records acquisition, indexed and managed translation projects in the United States and abroad. Morton, an award-winning genealogy writer, editor, and speaker based in Euclid, Ohio, is a contributing editor at Family Tree Magazine, editor of Ohio Genealogy News, and an official blogger at the world's largest free genealogy website, Family Search. JGNH is a project of the Jewish Federation. Support for this free event is provided in memory of Marsha Jaffe. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events. The session will also be available via Facebook Live at the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton Facebook page. Bill Seeks to Improve Holocaust Understanding in Ohio by Tyler Buchanan, Ohio Capital Journal. Most young Americans believe anti-Semitism exists in the United States today yet a striking number have little to no knowledge about the Holocaust. That's a problem Ohio legislators hope to resolve through a proposed uh, commission to better educate people about the atrocities of the genocides. Among one in eight millennials and members, members of Generation Z have never heard of the Holocaust. Of those who have heard of it, one in four either think the Holocaust is a myth or that the number of Jews who were killed has been greatly exaggerated. Those are the results of a nationwide survey on Holocaust knowledge and awareness conducted earlier this year by the Claims Conference, which facilitates restitution and reparations for Holocaust survivors and presents Holocaust education programs. Its research firm interviewed 1,000 people ages 18 to 39 from each state and found Ohio fared worse than average. Ohio Senator Michael Rooley, Republican of Salem, has introduced Senate Bill 372, which would create the Holocaust and Genocide Memorial and Education Commission.
The proposed 15-member group would comprise legislators, state officials, educators, and researchers with the goal of improving um, widespread understanding about genocide. Assisting the commission would be a new Holocaust and Genocide Memorial and Education Office with $275,000 in funding to pay for a director and other expenses. The office would, among other things, work to secure grant and gift funding to further these education efforts around the state. Those involved would study the existing memorials, programs, and initiatives in Ohio and look to fill a gap in the public's understanding. The bill envisions a partnership between the Commission and organizations across Ohio, including the Nancy and David Wolf Holocaust and Humanity Center in Cincinnati, the National Veterans Memorial and Museum in Columbus, the Maltz Museum of Jewish Heritage in Beechwood, and the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force near Dayton, which permanently displays Prejudice and Memory, a Holocaust exhibit curated by Dayton Holocaust Committee Chair Renate Friedman. Given the heightened tensions in our nation, I believe now more than ever we need to help educate the next generation about how horrors like the Holocaust can be perpetrated by even the most civilized and sophisticated people, Rurley said. We know that simply pledging to never forget is not enough, as sadly genocide continues to this day. My hope is that Ohio's youth will become enlightened as a result of this legislation to avoid such atrocities from ever happening again. Several Jewish leaders in Ohio have complimented the effort, including Howie Beagleman, executive director of Ohio Jewish Communities, who described a glaring lack of knowledge about the Holocaust among the general public. One claims conference survey question found that 15% of millennials and members of Generation Z think it is acceptable for an individual to hold neo-Nazi views. In April, several people appeared at a Columbus protest of COVID-19 lockdowns with various anti-Semitic signs. One of the co-sponsors of Rurley's bill is Ohio Senator Andrew Brenner, Republican of Powell, who was widely condemned in April for a Facebook post viewed as anti-Semitic. In that post, made on Holocaust Remembrance Day, Brenner said he would not let the uh, then-state health director, Dr. Amy Acton, who was Jewish, turn Ohio into Nazi Germany. Brenner received widespread criticism from Senate President Larry Obhoff, Republican of Medina, Governor Mike DeWine, and a number of other officials. He later apologized and now is offering his support for creating this Genocide Education Commission. Another Republican legislator, Ohio Rep. Nino Vitale of Urbana, was similarly condemned by the Anti-Defamation League for having repeatedly referred to Acton as a globalist health director, using a word often used by anti-Semites as a slur against Jews. Beagleman said OGC has developed a protocol for handling anti-Semitic comments from public officials due to their frequency. He's now glad to see this effort from the legislature. This bill, uh, led by Senator Rooley and so many bipartisan co-sponsors, will help leverage Ohio schools, teachers, and community resources to teach this critical history, Beagleman said.
And next from the Jewish Observer, new initiative will significantly lower price of Jewish teen extended trips to Israel by Josephine Dolston, JTA. A new initiative will significantly lower the cost of extended group trips to Israel for Jewish American teens. The Jewish Education Project announced that it has received a $20 million gift from the Marcus Foundation for its Route 1 initiative. The funds will subsidize trips by five Jewish youth groups, the Pluralistic BBYO, the Orthodox NCSY, and the Reform Nifty, along with USY and Ramah, both affiliated with the conservative movement. With the subsidies, the groups can lower the cost of the trips by $3,000 per participant. The cost typically ranges from $4,500 to $8,000 for trips lasting three to six weeks. The initiative hopes to increase the number of teens participating in the trips by 40% every year, according to a statement. We want young people stepping into their college campuses with deep connections to Israel and strong Jewish identities, Marcus Foundation Chairman Bernie Marcus said in the statement. The first trips to Israel to be financed through the Route 1 initiative are expected to take place next summer. And next from the opinion section of the Observer, how to save a corrosive political culture. The friendship between the late justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia provides a model for how all Americans should interact with political foes by Jonathan S. Tobin. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died September 18, the eve of Rosh Hashanah at the age of 87, was a symbol of female empowerment as well as a renowned scholar and jurist. Though not religious, she was a proud Jew, and her achievements as an attorney in an era where women were not fully accepted in the legal profession and then as a principal judge justified the many laudatory eulogies about her. But Ginsburg's status as a pop culture icon and idol of liberals, feminists, and others who nicknamed her the notorious RBG after a rap star made her known popularly in a way no other American judge has ever been. As such, President Donald Trump, whom Ginsburg's many fans detest, naming her successor, has added more fuel to the fire of a political conflict that already seemed more like a tribal culture war than a presidential election. But rather than succumb to the temptation to treat political differences as proof of evil, we should be learning from her to embrace our opponents as fellow humans without giving up our principles. By the time she passed away, Ginsburg had since ceased being merely an honored female pioneer or the intellectual leader of the high court's liberal faction, as well as an admirable role model for Jewish women and girls. The transformation of a deeply serious and cultured judge into a badass culture war figure gave her significance that transcended the legal battlefields where she had labored. RGB, who inspired I Dissent t-shirts, coffee mugs, bobblehead dolls, action figures, coloring books, and a character on SNL played by Kate McKinnon was a symbol of the resistance to political conservatives in general and Trump in particular. Conservatives like the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice 
Antonin Scalia believed that the original intent of the framers should dictate how the Constitution should be interpreted. Ginsburg upheld the liberal tradition that took a more activist view of the Constitution as a living document that could change in order to justify what she considered necessary changes. A secular saint of the political left, her sudden passing has further inflamed divisions in American society. Those who claim to venerate her memory are now threatening to burn it all down if Republicans confirm their conservative successor to Ginsburg. Others are threatening to pack the court with liberals should Democrats gain control of the government next year, something Ginsburg specifically opposed. Her granddaughter reportedly said her dying wish was to be replaced by the next president, whom she likely hopes would be former Vice President Joe Biden. There's plenty of hypocrisy on both sides of the argument about the future of the court. Due to the way Congress has abdicated its responsibilities, the court is the only effective check on the growth of the administrative state controlled by the executive branch. In effect, it is the super legislature that has more to say about the disposition of key issues than the other branches of government. That struggle to control the court is therefore a life and death affair for both parties. And it has turned Ginsburg's death into one more excuse for Americans to attack and demonize each other. But it doesn't have to be that way, and Ginsburg's own life provides an example of how to return to treating opponents as fellow human beings we can respect and like even when we disagree with them. One of the most inspiring stories about Ginsburg is about friendship, not legal combat. Scalia, whose death in 2016 triggered a previous court controversy, was Ginsburg's conservative counterpart. Like her, his opinions were intellectual and often fiery critiques of what he considered the flawed thinking of colleagues. On the most contentious issues that divide Americans, Scalia and Ginsburg stood on opposite sides. In the political culture of America, in 2020, such disagreements have become the moral equivalent of religious war in which compromise or even mutual respect is impossible. That's not how Scalia and Ginsburg looked at it. The two served as colleagues on the prestigious Federal Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and were eventually reunited on the Supreme Court. On both benches, they jousted on a host of cases with neither of them sparring, uh, sparing each other's positions from scorn in their opinions. And yet they were also close personal friends. The two shared a love of opera, which they often attended together. Indeed, their friendship was immortalized in a comic opera called Scalia versus Ginsburg. They also loved food and, along with their spouses, shared meals and even traveled together. While their personalities were different, Scalia was more voluble and Ginsburg more reserved. Their respect and affection for each other were never in question. No case, no matter how contentious, ever came between them. How did they do it, and how can society emulate their example? The answer comes not just from the nobility of spirit that both embodied, but from mutual values that transcended ideological differences. They could care about each other while also disagreeing because of a shared morality. In his new book titled Morality, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, 
former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, explains that people act in this manner because they see themselves as part of the same framework of virtues and values, rules and responsibilities, codes and customs, conventions and constraints. As Sachs points out, morality achieves something almost miraculous and fundamental to human achievement and liberty. It creates trust. It means that to the extent that we are part of the same moral community, we can work together without constantly being on guard against violence, betrayal, exploitation, or deception. The stronger the bonds of community, the more powerful the force of trust, and the more we can achieve together. This is a powerful lesson that those two judges, each revered by their own side of the political divide, understood intuitively. The trouble with all too many Americans right now, on both the right and the left, is that they are so drenched with hatred of political opponents that they no longer see them as part of the same community. Those who view things differently are foes not merely to be defeated, but to be delegitimized and destroyed. Scalia and Ginsburg taught us that we can still be friends while strongly disagreeing with each other. Engaging in civil discourse between left and right may no longer seem possible. But willing to agree to disagree and to respect each other's opinions and credit each other with good motives has gone out of style with unknowable consequences for the future of American democracy. We can learn from the two judges that civility and mutual respect don't require agreement as much as commonalities at the core. Instead of using Ginsburg's death as an excuse to make these divisions worse with threats and insults, we should be remembering her example and stop demonizing our opponents. May both their memories be for a blessing. Jonathan S. Tobin is editor-in-chief of JNS Jewish News Syndicate. And next from the religion page of The Observer, A Little Candle with a Big Flame by Rabbi Nachem Mengel, Chabad of Greater Dayton. My granddaughter Kenny just celebrated her third birthday. Her parents, my daughter Sarah and her husband Hanak, threw a big party late Friday afternoon, the day of her actual birthday, for this special occasion in addition to the birthday bash she had with her friends at school. They invited their friends and community to participate in an outdoor celebration, of course observing proper distancing and masking. Why the big party? It marks an important milestone in her life. She will now begin to light her own Shabbat candle every Friday night and Jewish holiday. At her party, all received a party bag filled with the Shabbat essentials like challah, matzo ball soup, and a delicious dessert. The party favors were included in the gift bag and were two beautiful Shabbat candles and a note asking all women to please light the candles in their own homes that evening. Then, as the sun was about to set, Kenny, my daughter Sarah, and my wife Devorah, Kenny's grandmother, stood around the Shabbat table ready to usher in the holiness and sanctity of Shabbat by lighting their candles placed at the center of the table. Little Kenny dressed in the most stunning new Shabbat dress with a crown of flowers on her head. 
Her face radiated with excitement and joy as she stood on a chair between her mother and grandmother, performing this great mitzvah that connected her with religious Jewish women throughout history. Of course, as a grandparent, I was quelling. What nachas, what pride, what an excellent job Sarah and her husband did raising their child. But beyond these feelings, I was also struck by the power and meaning of the event. I could see how much Kenny was enjoying her moment in the limelight, and I suddenly realized the reality of how this moment so early in life can be life-changing. That's how Mutic sage Abaya was asked by a rabbi how he remembered a particular obscure law, and he replied, Girsa the Ankusa. This is something I learned as a small child, and it never leaves. In Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, Elisha ben Avoya compares the effect learning has on us when we were young, are young to its effect when we are old. When we are young, it is as if we are writing on a clean sheet of paper and the letters are crisp and clear. When we are old, it is more like trying to write on a paper on which writing has been written and erased several times, much harder to read. Modern neurological science confirms the powerful nature of early memories and impressions. They are embedded and imprinted deep in our brains. They influence our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions years later in a profound way. Although it might only be in our subconscious mind, it has an ongoing and lasting impact. It is not a process of reason, but on the core outlook of the world and our place in it. It serves as a foundation for the entire structure of our intelligence and our emotional life. I vividly felt what a wonderful lifelong gift Kenny was receiving. She was learning that her pure and innocent child's faith could help, her, uh, could help people and make the world better that she was able to do things just like her dear mother and father that helped make the world a brighter and warmer place. She saw how she could bring some light into the world and could sense how even as a young three-year-old, even she can drive away much darkness by lighting one small candle. Our great Hasidic masters, the Rebbe's, taught us that the more sophisticated we are, the more we need to learn and rely on the incredible power of simple, innocent faith. We who are older may have more practical knowledge and experience of how the world works, but along with that understanding comes worry, skepticism, and at times cynicism as well. We need to connect and re-engage our own happy, cheerful little three-year-old. We must tap into that deepest level of faith within, to see the world as a place of possibilities and opportunities. The Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, often quoted the book of Psalms, Mi pi olalim veyokim yasad ta'oz. From the mouths of babies and nursing infants, you have set foundations of strength. When the world has lost its reference points and lost its moorings, that is when we must look to the pure and life-changing recognition a little child like Kenny has, that they matter and that they can bring light. In this time of so many troubles, this simple message is crucial. The simple confidence of a three-year-old that we can bring light to the world and drive away the darkness, no matter how small we may be, 
is something that all the talking heads of the world cannot supply. We can and do make a difference. We can shine our own light, and together with the lights of others, we will ultimately make the world a more peaceful, better, warmer, and brighter place with the imminent coming of Moshiach, Messiah. And next from the Jewish Family Education section of The Observer, Let There Be Light, from the new series by Candace Arquiatech, Considering Creation. Creation began with an infinite divine light, the Or Ein Sof, according to the Torah's mystical interpretation found in the Kabbalah, to create an empty space where physical and spiritual worlds could be created. God contracted the divine light, Tzimtzum, and created vessels to hold its concentrated energy. Not strong enough, the vessel shattered, Shevirat HaKelim, sending sparks of celestial light throughout the universe. While this Kabbalistic interpretation of creation may seem fanciful and far-fetched, it accords surprisingly well with the biblical text. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw how good the light was, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, a first day. Although stylistically very different, both the Bible and Kabbalah are of like mind about the distinctive identities of dark and light, the transcendent nature of light, and light's quality of goodness. It is noteworthy that these ancient texts foretell modern science's account of the evolution of the universe. According to the Big Bang Theory, an initial exploding expansion of radiation from a single timeless and spaceless primeval atom of extremely high density and temperature suffused space with a bright light that would not have been visible to the human eye. As the universe cooled, the radiation differentiated into various wavelengths, including visible light. Primordial elements coalesced, creating stars and galaxies. Surrounding them arose a form of unseen dark matter that doesn't emit, absorb, or reflect light, but has mass and gravitational pull, echoing the biblical notion of darkness. Remarkable, no? And yet, science only tells us what exists. Torah is a guide to why we exist and how to live. So how can let there be light and God saw it was good help us understand the purpose of being and the way to live? Light expresses much more than an electromagnetic wavelength. We can shed light on something or bring something to light, enlighten someone or see the light ourselves or see someone or something in a new light. If something sees the light of day, it comes into existence or is made known to the public. Light signifies perception, recognition, insight, and creativity. We can be a ray of light, bringing hope to a difficult situation, or do things with a light heart, radiating cheerfulness and optimism in the world. In the Kabbalistic view, our job is to gather the sparks of God's scattered light, tikkun, and use them to help prepare the world. As the Jewish expression goes, a little bit of light pushes away a lot of darkness. In Proverbs 6.23, we read, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. 
A popular folk song captures the same sentiment with words from the Zohar. Torah or hallelujah, the Torah is light, hallelujah. Torah study brings enlightenment, enlightenment. The lights of candles and lamps express the sanctity of time on Shabbat and festivals, the sanctity of place in the holy temple and synagogue, and the sanctity of remembrance for yard site and Yad Vashem. Commenting on the temple menorah, the late Rabbi Aidan Steinsaltz noted that it served no practical purpose, its light serving only as a symbol of the holiness of that place. Yet, when the temple was destroyed, the menorah came to be the premier symbol of Jewish existence. Light conveys the sanctity of time, place, memory, and continuity. Straightforward and uncomplicated, God saw it was good expresses the inherent optimism in creation that good will ultimately prevail, suggests author and commentator Dennis Prager. Biblical commentator Leon Cass explains it is an affirmation that what has been created, divine light, is complete and fitting for its purpose in relation to the unfolding whole. Looking through the lens of social anthropology, Rabbi Nachum Sarna notes, it banishes the ancient pagan notion of inherent primordial evil, a cosmos built on a mythological brew of fates and evil forces. In the biblical view, creation is in the biblical view, creation I'm sorry. In the biblical view, creation is infused with divine goodness and evil's place is only as a moral quality. The Lubavitcher Rebbe proposed that God means both light and darkness have the potential for goodness. All the world, even the darkness, should become a source of light and wisdom. The Midrash asks, from where was the light created? The answer is whispered, the light was created from the place of the holy temple. The Holy One enveloped himself in it like a cloak, and the light of its splendor shone from one end of the world to the other. The light that permeates all creation is divine, and it is visible to those who look for it. But it is inert unless we put it to use. Our job is to bring more light into the world, ignite the light. Shine a light to improve perception, recognition, insight, and creativity. Bring the lights of hope, cheerfulness, and optimism to the world. Gather sparks of light and help repair the world. Immerse in the light of Torah. Kindle lights to sanctify time, place, memory, and continuity. Create light in the darkness. How will you ignite the divine light today? And literature to share as suggested by Candice R. Quietek. I wanted fries with that. How to ask for what you want and get what you need by Amy Fish. This is more than just a practical handbook. It's a delightful read. An experienced professional problem solver, Fish divides this slim volume into three parts. I want my problem solved, I want you to change, and I want justice to be served. In each section, she provides clear methods for addressing a variety of troublesome scenarios illustrated with realistic and humorous examples. I read this in one sitting and plan to read it again. And American Gollum, 
The New World Adventures of an Old World Mud Monster by Mark Lumer. The legendary tale of the Golem of Prague takes a new twist in this American immigrant story with real kid appeal. Newly arrived from the old world, a young boy builds a golem for protection against bullies and other dangers. But he soon discovers America is a very different place and the golem needs a new job. Historical photographs of New York City and graphic novel-style illustrations are a perfect complement to the narrative in this delightful tale for elementary readers and families. And next from The Observer, The Marvelous Mr. Mazel with Mr. Mazel himself, Scott Hallas. Stephen and Mary Solomon earned a pretty cool honor from Preservation Dayton Incorporated after purchasing a prairie-style house on Squirrel Road in Dayton's Five Oaks neighborhood. Stephen and Mary fixed it up from top to bottom and, for their efforts, received an Excellence in Preservation Award. They bought the house in 2018 and had structural improvements made to the roof, plumbing system, fireplace, and chimney. The house, built in 1916 according to county property records, was designed by Dayton architects Schenck and Williams, known for the Engineers Club, Liberty Tower, and the Wright family's Hawthorne Hill home. The Solomons requested the city's approval to rezone the property from HD1 overlay, one of the least restrictive historic designations, to HD2 overlay, one of the most restrictive, and requires a certificate of appropriateness for any exterior work. All boards voted to approve the rezoning, confirming that the house is the finest example in the Prairie School style. It is now designated as a Dayton Historic Landmark. Matthew Clickstein is celebrating the release of his newest book, The Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World, aimed at younger readers and features an entire group of characters with various developmental disabilities. It's a work of fiction based on the real rock band Kids of Whitney High, which is made up of singer-songwriters with disabilities. Matthew is giving a portion of the proceeds to a nonprofit that works with people with disabilities as well. Actress Maya Bialik of Blossom and the Big Bang Theory fame gave Matthew's book a shout-out on Twitter, calling it tender and funny, and added that it's perfect to read with your kids, and it gives me hope. This led the book to Amazon bestseller status in the category of books about kids with disabilities. The first run of the book also sold out in two days, Matthew said. His 2010 documentary film about the band, Act Your Age, The Kids of Whitney High Story, was screened at the Neon on October 22nd in conjunction with the book release and was included in the Columbus Real Abilities Film Festival online in October. The film is being picked up by streaming service Troma Now and will be available soon. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening.